Hello and welcome to episode 245 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, not as always, for the second time in three weeks with Jason Rabinowitz. So three episodes ago, Jason was traveling in Asia. Two episodes ago, Jason was still traveling in Asia, but found time to call in. And then this week, Jason's home, but he's ill. So filling in, not even filling in, just going in an entirely different direction this week, we've got Gabe Lee, who is nice enough to join us both standing in to help me get through much of the episode, but also to take the episode in a very different direction to talk about what he works on for Flight Editor 24, which is all of our fantastic video content. If you haven't watched a YouTube video on the Flight Raider 24 YouTube channel, A, how dare you? And B, please do so because they're fantastic. So Gabe, thanks so much for on a late evening in Stockholm, going with the flow, I should say. Absolutely. No worries. Great to be here. And thanks for saying that about the videos. As someone who is on both sides of the videos, both saying, yes, go do this. And yes, I want to watch this. I am quite pleased with what you've been up to lately. We've got a great show. We're going to talk about some of the videos that Gabe's worked on recently, what he's been up to, and where we're going next with the Flight Raider 24 YouTube channel, because there's some fascinating stuff that we would love to do as a podcast, but requires visuals. And so we have Gabe out there doing all of that great work. And then we're going to chat with Ned Russell, the airline editor at Skift, who is going to fill us in on the big news of the week and discuss with us the Alaska Airlines proposed merger with Hawaiian Airlines. We'll cover some news and then we'll be off to the Yule board. So let's dive in. Gabe, you've been, what, six continents this year, I think? Could be. Uh, or we're planning on at least six and hoping for seven, maybe not by the end of the year, but by early next year. And where are you coming from now? We're standing in Stockholm. Where are you coming from now? And where are you going next? Yeah. So I just got back from my second trip to Madeira. I managed to do a couple of these in the span of about a year, which is super fun. If you don't know, Madeira, famous runway there, captain's only landing, Many of you will probably have seen the kind of conditions that you might encounter there. Lots of windy takeoffs and landings. It makes for great viewing from a distance. It makes for great plane spotting. And I've managed to go in there in the flight deck twice now. This latest time was with Condor on the A321. And that was extra fun because it was with a guy called Pascal. He's first officer with Condor. He's also a YouTuber. He has a big YouTube presence, German language. So mostly followers in Germany. We met when we did the Condor A330 Neo delivery video earlier this year. He was there to cover it, not to fly it, but he got to fly on it. And I didn't because he's part of the airline <laughs> and there was some paperwork missing to let me on that. Uh -huh. But so as a kind of a makeup, we managed to put it together that I would join a Condor flight to Madeira and in one in which Pascal was the first officer. So that was just a nice way to spend some time, but also he sets up a bunch of cameras too. So you get all the different angles. So we've already put out the kind of the landing video from all the different angles, three different cameras, and I'm working on the massive edit about the trip there. And then we did a direct turn back to Frankfurt the same day. So it's kind of like a day in the life for Pascal. And it happened Very to be cool. also his last A320 flight. He's moving to the 330 Neo. Oh, next. wow. Yeah. So that was just by chance. So a very nice trip. The weather was pretty bad. So that added a little bit of excitement too. It wasn't super windy, but it was low cloud layer. So there was some doubt about whether we would be able to land. 
which is always, you know, fun only for me as the person <laughs> making the video. Everyone else just wants to land. Right, right. You're hoping for, what was it, two go-arounds and a diversion? Right, you know, I want maximum go-arounds, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I hate to inconvenience the passengers, but we're trying to do YouTube content. We're trying, to make, we're yeah. trying to make a video here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it made for some, it's, it's cool. It's visually very interesting. And there's, there's a lot that goes into planning for what may happen if they can't see the runway. You know, they have to be really on top of everything there, especially. So that That's one of the things that, I mean taking this out of the like video context, but that's one of the things before I started this job, I didn't really understand how much work went into planning for things that 99.999% of the time aren't going to happen. Yeah. How much pilots practice and brief and plan for things like, if this happens, this is what we're going to do. If this happens, this is what we're going to do. I had no, like as a passenger, you have no idea that's going to happen. And until you kind of go down this road of getting into aviation and then being able to see, as we both have, being able to see kind of the behind the scenes of things, you don't realize that there's a whole different world happening on the flight deck when it's cloudy. Yeah. You know, versus when it's sunny or, you know, there's a whole set of briefings and everything like that. And it's fascinating to see how that's planned. It's amazing to watch and to get a front row seat. I always feel very privileged to sort of be in on all these conversations and see everything that goes into it, you know, because I like airplanes, but also just as a human, it's fascinating that what we've put together with this yeah. whole industry. And there is this kind of conception that people have now because flying is so routine and so safe that pilots mostly just kind of sit there push some buttons, right? But there is all this planning for things that almost definitely won't happen. That's the key part. Yeah. There was a great blog back when like blogs were new. It was an anonymous captain. It was very clear that if you like, if you read enough, you figured out that he was a, back when US Airways was an airline, he was a US Airways A320 family captain, flew mostly the 321. I remember that. It was, I think it was, it was like flight level 390 or, or 395, something at Blogspot, right. I want to say. But he's a huge part of why I got not into aviation because I was like always interested in planes. I always loved that, but got interested in the how aviation happens because he would write through and he had this writing style of explaining just a walk around and made it a chapter in an amazing novel. And just like he would explain the fuel consumption monitoring. Like that's not something as a, I don't think any passengers think like, what are the pilots doing? Oh, they're flying the plane. Well, yeah, they are. But a huge part of that is making sure there's enough fuel in the plane to continue flying the plane. Right. And, and the way he would describe that was always just fascinating to me. And Sadly, I think there's maybe two or three people that know what happened to the end of that, but it, it just kind of ended. And I was always you know, curious about that because that like kickstarted one of my like, okay, I need to learn more about this yeah. because it's so fascinating. Yeah. So that's Madeira's, the most recent video. Where are we headed next? So the big plan that I'm putting together for the next thing, which is not for a little while, is Venezuela. So that is a very different kind of project because they have a lot of classic airplanes flying there. We don't see much from there because of the situation right now. We don't hear much, but they have a lot of airlines and they're busy over there and they've got a number of 737-200s. I believe at least three airlines have active 200s and then a bunch of MD-80s and other things alongside. So I'm arranging to have some good access there and fly along for, you know, over the course of a week around Venezuela, which should be Interesting, to say I, at least. I'm looking forward to seeing that. And I will say that I'm glad it's you going 
and not me. But I'm, I'm very excited to see what comes of that. So yeah, let's stop there for right now before we give too much away. I will say, if you haven't watched our YouTube channel, the YouTube channel is flightradar24.com spelled out. Or you can just search Flight Raider 24 on YouTube, or you can go to flightradar24.com and check out our blog where each video that Gabe has put together receives its own post with a bit more info than just the video itself. So that's a great way to watch through them. Let's take a quick break and I'll be back with Ned Russell and we'll figure out what is going on between Alaska Airlines and Hawaiian Airlines. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The major airline news this week helpfully happened before we hit record on the podcast and not happened, you know, seconds before as is often the case if it doesn't happen after we hit record, but it happened days before. So we've actually had time to digest the news and here to help us digest it further is Ned Russell, who is the airlines editor at Skift. Ned, thank you so much for joining us once again on the show to talk about, let's see, who's merging this week? It's going to be Alaska buying Hawaiian. All right. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be back. And that's right. We've had a little time to digest this. It wasn't necessarily my favorite way to spend a Sunday afternoon covering a big airline merger, but such is life. <laughs> the... <laughs> The deal will see Alaska buy Hawaiian for about $1.9 billion. That's $1 billion in cash and about $900 million in net debt from Hawaiian. The plan is to integrate the two airlines into one single operating certificate, but maintain two brands, which is a unique structure for a U.S. airline merger. So it sounds like we don't know what the airline, from a customer's perspective, we don't really know what the airline's going to look like. Because we've got Alaska buying Hawaii, they say they're going to maintain two separate brands. So on the face of it, it sounds like an Air France KLM situation. But Air France KLM, it's two airlines just owned by the same company. Whereas this would be exactly. one company that has two brands. So we don't really know whether or not it's going to be, is it going to be Alaska and Hawaii as we know them today? Will there be some kind of mix of cultures? I mean, yeah, I think there'll be some kind of mix because Alaska said they're going to bring all of Hawaiian staff, basically combine the work groups of both airlines. So you're going to have both cultures mixing at the new carrier. It's going to be interesting now. I'm curious to see, does that mean flight attendants can work either airline's flight, and you might have a flight that is like, welcome board Alaska flight to, oh, wait, no, a Hawaiian Airlines flight to today to wherever that goes, or if they're going to have those the separate, I don't know how that's going to work, but you're going to have that mixing of people and brands behind the scenes, whereas the customer, your ticket will say Hawaiian, your plane, assuming will still say Hawaiian, your Alaska plane will say Alaska, but behind the scenes is going to be interesting. And if we're thinking of an example, the one I keep getting is Marriott. Marriott has one holding company, but many brands and uh, single labor agreements across some of their properties. So kind of similar. Interesting. Yeah, no, I guess the hotel analogy actually holds up pretty well when you think about it. So I think we got ahead of ourselves here as far as talking about what the culture would be like. Let's talk about why Alaska is buying Hawaii or, or why the, the airlines are, are merging. What's the rationale there? Well, I'll just say, Ian, there's, there's, so much, <laughs> there's so much to talk about here. It's easy to get ahead of yourself. But 
But the that's why. okay. Yeah. <laughs> the why, I mean, I really think there's three big whys here, and that is scale, loyalty, and premium. Those are sort of the three things coming out of the pandemic that airlines have really benefited from. We are in a constrained industry. The more scale you can have, i.e. the more planes, the more gates, the more control you have with suppliers, the better off you are. The loyalty, bigger loyalty programs, especially in the U.S., generate a lot of high margin revenue for airlines. And people want to fly premium cabins. Hawaiian's got a larger premium footprint than Alaska does. And that's you know a big reason to add them to Alaska's mix. So, I mean... I'm pretty sure I've got my numbers right, but correct me if I'm wrong. Alaska's the fifth largest airline in the US. And adding Hawaiian to Alaska Air doesn't leapfrog them any spaces in kind of how big they are as far as the top five airlines go. Because I mean, right now they're still, I think, what, half the size or less than half the size of Southwest, which is number four. So this is not necessarily about becoming a bigger airline than a competitor, but it's about better competition. If I'm understanding their argument better, because they're saying, look, we can't grow organically because of where we're based. I mean, both Alaska and Hawaii are very special markets. And with Alaska based in Seattle, Seattle's not a growth airport. No, you not know, at all. It's, it, it's quite the opposite, really. So by buying Hawaiian, they're I guess I'm kind of making the case right now. And tell me if I'm understanding their case for it. Hawaiian is is the natural fit. Hawaiian's the natural fit because they have a similar, I mean, I say island culture, both in terms of physically, but we can think of Alaska as an island as far as the US airline market goes. Absolutely. These are the only two states that have like namesake airlines and airlines that have a specialty of flying people within those states. And yeah, they've had some competition. You know, Hawaiian faces Southwest. There's been various airlines that tried Alaska at some point in time, but it is a unique identity, a unique operating model that both airlines use that really doesn't exist to other airlines. So what's been the reaction by kind of their home state or hometown constituencies? What's been the the initial reaction so far? Ooh, Ian, you're testing me here. So I have generally (laughs) heard positive, (laughs) I've heard positive things from the investor community on this. The labor unions have come out without passing pains, but I, I haven't seen reactions from local polls or legislators yet. Have you seen anything out of the Hawaii delegations? I mean, Hawaii is really the big one here. No, I mean, that's kind of what I was wondering because I haven't seen anything strongly supporting saying, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. You know, we're glad we're keeping the two brands or coming out against it. You know, how dare you try to merge or something like that? So I guess I'm wondering, you know, if politicians and business leaders in those two states are kind of waiting to see the answer to the question of what would the two airlines look like? Because on the face of it, it seems like the mollification of them. By Alaska saying, no, we're going to keep Hawaiian as a separate brand. It'll be Alaska and Hawaiian, and those will be the two brands that we have, and they will keep their identities. That seems to me a good way to keep in good graces, I guess I should say. 
I really think so too. So I've done a quick search of the two Hawaiian senators, Twitter or X feeds, and neither has posted anything about the proposed merger. So it doesn't mean they haven't said something, but that's just they're definitely holding back to see what the commitments are. Now, to be clear, Alaska has promised to keep work groups and union jobs in Hawaii. They're very clearly going selling that local angle. And I mean, remember the press conference they held on Sunday for this was in Hawaii to the bane of all of us reporters based on the East Coast, but it, it was in Hawaii for local press. <laughs> So we can safely assume that they're trying to garner as much support in Hawaii as they possibly can. What about support in Washington? I mean, today, we're recording Tuesday, the 5th of December, and today was the closing arguments in the JetBlue Spirit merger trial where the US Department of Justice is suing to block that merger. I mean, on the face of it, this is an airline merger. The Justice Department under the Biden administration has been very anti-consolidation, writ large, especially airline consolidation. What's the likelihood that the DOJ says, yeah, we don't want to see this happen either? I've spoken to a number of people about that in the last two days, and the likelihood seems high that the Biden DOJ is going to challenge this merger. Like you said, they have a very anti-consolidation stance broadly. That said, a lot of people question what grounds they're going to use. So if we think about the JetBlue Spirit merger, the Justice Department's main focus is you're eliminating the lowest fare competitor in the market, Spirit. You're going to bring them up to JetBlue's model. It's going to raise fares, hurt consumers. Okay, I get that argument. But how do you make that about Alaska Hawaiian? They have two comparable business models. They have very little network overlap. I believe there's only three routes that they both fly with no competition on it. And none of those are in slot controlled airports, so anyone could technically fly them. So it's really the question is, how are they going to make the case that this is going to hurt consumers? To kind of add to that, as I've been thinking through things is, this one makes sense to me in the fact that a larger airline could better compete against the larger airlines. I mean, Southwest entry into Hawaii was extremely disruptive to Hawaiians. I mean, I think to this day, that's one of the big reasons why Hawaiian is continuing to lose money. Yes, there's other challenges, but I think that is a big contributor to that factor, Southwest and the pressure Southwest is putting on them. Alaska's California flying is to a certain extent already a reaction to or an entry against Southwest. So, I mean, it it seems to me that there's a way to compete against them and, and Alaska seems to have already figured it out. And so now if you're growing by adding a direct competitor to Southwest, which is really the airline that they're competing against, if you look at a lot of their route networks, yeah, then so much the better. For them, at least. I mean, I'm sure Southwest has different opinions. But if, if we're talking about you know competition, it seems like this actually enables a bit more competition. I mean, whereas when the DOJ is arguing that, you know, JetBlue buying Spirit is bad for consumers, I think that's probably pretty clear. Yeah. If you're flying between New York and Florida and you take Spirit out of the equation, that's one less competitor. Fares are likely going to go up. Regardless of what JetBlue argues, fares will probably go up from where they are today. But if you take Hawaiian and put them with Alaska, it's really hard to see how in many of those West Coast markets to Hawaii, which are already expensive, those fares go up by much, if at all. Yeah. And the one thing that I think is the great unknown here as far as how the airlines 
a combined Alaska Hawaiian would manage things is, and we always love to talk about what are they going to do with the airplanes? What are they going to do with the airplanes? What are they going to do? I really can't wait to see an A787 with Chester on the tail, Ian. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so you've got Hawaiian flying. And the funniest thing about all of this to me is that you would have an Alaska Airlines group flying for Amazon, which I don't know why it's amusing to me, but it just is. And so you've got Hawaiian, you have Alaska Airlines, which has just successfully divested itself of all of its Airbus aircraft and gone back to that proudly all Boeing moniker. Or started, you know, Asterix, except for some U-175s at Horizon. Sure, sure, sure. But, you know, that's a whole whole different kettle of fish, I guess. But then you have the airline coming in, which is Hawaiian, which has 717s that need to be retired by the end of the decade. Yes. They're just cycle limited. You're done with them. Those planes were original 717. They are done. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got the A321neos, which are their own set of problems that regular listeners to the podcast have have no shortage of information on why they're the problem, but suffice it to say the engines don't work. And so you've got a large chunk of them grounded. And then you've got an A330 fleet, which is split between passengers and flying, soon to be flying for for Amazon, or not soon to be, they have their first aircraft in the air. So you've got a larger fleet soon to be flying for Amazon on the Airbus side. And it seems like Alaska, at least in the announcements in the past few days, is unconcerned about that. And it's, we'll deal with that later. Whereas from the get-go with Virgin, they were like, no, 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 we just need where they're flying. We just need the slots. We need the airports. We need the routes. We don't really need the whole rest of the airline, which I mean, as a consumer was the best part of Virgin America, but I'm not bitter at all, Ned. No, not at all, Ian. Not at all. So I think Ben Minicucci, the CEO at Alaska, put it really well on this point. He said, the opportunities far outweigh some of the complexities uh, from the deal. And I think that's that's what you see with the fleet. Now, down the road, are, will we likely see some streamlining of the fleet? I think so. There definitely was some hints in the investor presentation that 737 NGs could replace the 717s in Hawaii. And you imagine you bring in some Horizon E175s at some point, you can get some nice variation in capacity of the day. So there you go. You've taken out the 717s around the end of the decade, you're still left with 321s, 330s, and 787s. I think we generally see the 787 as winning out here. It's the new generation plane. The 330 will eventually have to be replaced anyway. But I mean, it's still, it does definitely add some complexity. Like that's, that is, is no one disagrees with that. To me, I think that's, as the av geek, that's the most interesting part of the puzzle. But it seems like one that becomes a bit more clear in the next few years. As you start to phase out these aircraft, you can move the pieces around and make things work. The amusement at this point is almost boundless. And the irony of of Alaska basically retiring the last former Virgin America A320 and then turning around and going, you know what? We're going to acquire an airline that operates almost solely Airbus aircraft. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, I know. I mean, literally, the last 321 was, what, in September? I mean, it's been two months, if yeah. that, since, since the last one flew. So it is a, very much an about face. I, we know that Alaska Management is working on this for, I've heard, for about a year. And so that means they were actively retiring their Airbus, Virgin Airbuses, while they were agreeing to buy Hawaiian's Airbuses. So it's definitely an interesting Time is a flat circle. Absolutely. I guess the things to, to take away here are... This deal is, I think, fundamentally different than the the JetBlue Spirit merger that's now, after closing arguments, currently under consideration by the judge whether or not it can move forward. It seems on the face of it more, if not pro-consumer, at least not clearly detrimental to people buying airline tickets. It's just much more interesting in the merging of these two airlines both in terms of how they'll manage it from a business perspective, but also how they'll manage it from a consumer perspective. So this one I'm much more interested in than JetBlue Spirit, which just seemed like a, a purely – JetBlue was worried about being left out of the out of the merger and acquisition spree after Frontier announced their deal. And they're like, we got to buy Spirit. And they jumped in. That's what it felt like. And here's our money. Here's all of our money. Take <laughs> our money, please. Take the card, max it out, just go. There you go. That, that, that sounds like exactly what happened. We get points for this, don't we? That's the only way we're doing this. <laughs> yes. No, I agree. This merger just feels like it makes a lot more sense. It's a unique deal, and I'm very curious about how this two brands, one airline thing works. The only thing that comes to mind is like shuttle by United in the US, which failed miserably, but that was trying to do something else. That was trying to be a low fare airline within a high cost airline, different thing. But I'm very curious about how that works. Ned, I want to thank you for two things. I want to thank you for your time, for coming on the show, helping us explain what's happening, a major proposed merger in the airline, but not more importantly, but equally as important. I want to thank you for giving this episode its title, Two brands, one airline. Ned Russell is the airline's editor at Skift. Ned, thank you so much for joining us. Talk to you soon, Ian. Welcome back. Now that we've got all the things that we're working on out of the way, we figured out precisely what is going on between Alaska and Hawaii. And if you don't feel like you have a good handle on it, because I don't think anyone does yet, I'm sure we'll be following up after more investor presentations on Alaska's part and Hawaii's investors you know, weigh in and we figure out what's going on. And maybe a year from now, we have a little bit more certainty. We'll see if the DOJ files suit. There's all sorts of things still up in the air, but it's an interesting time to see that merger beginning as the trial against the spirit JetBlue merger winds down or or has ended. We'll end the show this week with an odd journey through the US mental health system. And we'll back into that topic by way of the FAA finally proposing a 25-hour cockpit voice recorder requirement. This has already come through the European Union's Aviation Safety Agency and The FAA has been talking about this for a while, but now they've finally proposed it. It's been published in the Federal Register. If you feel like commenting on that, you can go to regulations.gov and comment on the FAA proposal because we love a good public comment period. But the idea is that CVRs will go from two hours looped recording to 25 hours because 
there have been a number of incidents in the previous few years, some involving mental health issues among pilots and some involving just pilots flying the plane for longer than two hours and the incident period being written over. For instance, the close call at JFK at the beginning of this year between an American Airlines 777 and Delta 737 NTSB investigators would have greatly appreciated if they had had the access to the CVRs. But the American Airlines flight departed not long after the incident and flew to London and then flew back. So much longer than two hours and gone. So now the FAA is saying, no, we want to have 25 hours on the CVR loop, which I think it's long overdue. Yeah, agreed. And the same week, the FAA has officially established a pilot and air traffic controller mental health panel, official panel, to study the way that the FAA regulates and mandates health screenings because, as we've talked about on the podcast before, the current regulations generally are felt by flying personnel and air traffic controllers to limit their ability to properly care for themselves. Because if they report mental health issues of any kind, there's often the chance that they will be removed from active duty and lose their livelihoods. The FAA and regulators are rightly concerned about making sure that pilots, air traffic controllers, and people of all stripes within the aviation community are as fit as they can be. But the regulations as they are now have often limited the options of people for taking care of themselves. So the idea with this panel is to investigate ways for people to to better address their own mental health so that they can both take care of themselves and keep working with mental health professionals where, you know, reporting talk therapy to the FAA doesn't necessarily result in losing your medical classification. So something that that has been pushed for a while from aviation professionals. Even the FAA has discussed this. The NTSB has certainly discussed this. So it's good to see that the FAA is doing this. They announced it the day before the NTSB held a panel on mental health. So timing is a bit, I don't want to call it suspect, but convenient, but it's good to see nonetheless. One of the incidents that has been certainly top of the news regarding pilot mental health is the Alaska Airlines pilot who was charged after trying to shut down the engines of a Horizon Air flight, initially charged with 83 counts of attempted murder. Those charges have been amended by the grand jury. So in Portland, the DA can charge initial charges that are then reviewed by a grand jury and adjusted as needed. So the pilot no longer charged with 83 counts of attempted murder. However, is now in charge with 84 counts of endangerment, 83 counts of endangerment to persons before every person on board the aircraft, and then one count of endangerment of the aircraft. That person remains behind bars in Portland awaiting trial. And then finally, the New York Times over the weekend published an article that was incredibly critical of the air traffic control staffing system. I don't want to say it was critical of the FAA specifically because it does give credit to the FAA for certain changes that they've made and points out that the FAA has has done maybe not the best it can, but a decent job mitigating some of the factors that have affected some of the issues that controllers are facing. But it paints a, a very dark picture 
about how controllers treated it. And on the podcast, we've talked about this uh, quite a bit, both from hearing from controllers that we speak with and seeing you know, governmental reports where controllers are working six days a week, 10 hours a day. And it's an incredibly stressful position. And I cannot imagine having seen air traffic controllers work for short periods of time on quick visits to towers and just listening to air traffic control audio like liveatc.net or anything like that. I can't imagine doing that six days a week for 10 hours a day. I mean, we're working a 10 hour shift. And it's not that they're consistent shifts too. I mean, it's shift work. So you're you're working days, then you're working overnights, and then you're working swing shift in the middle of the afternoon. And, and it's the New York Times article does a, an interesting job, I should say, because it all of these articles always feel like cherry picking because yeah. there, there's always, you know, the egregious things make the reports that are then accessible via Freedom of Information Act. Because those are the worst of the worst that have gotten reported, have been reviewed, and have been dealt with, as the FAA addresses as much. But I still think it paints a, a pretty damning portrait of, of the experience of air traffic controllers at the moment. And the FAA made some interesting comments in, on social media, basically trying to refute the New York Times article when they could have said, yeah, we know things are bad. We know how to fix it. Congress, please help. But it feels like they went on the defensive and it was, it was a bit awkward to watch. Yeah. Do you feel like they're kind of handling this a bit awkwardly in general? The thing, and we talked about this on last week's episode, where it's, you have federal agencies that have budgets and have requested budgetary allocation and not received that. And the FAAs felt like a, an administrative football to a great extent where Congress could appropriate a whole mess of funding and say, this is what we want to see happen. Make it happen. We want to hire this many air traffic controllers by this date. How much money do you need? And they don't do that. Yeah. And then turn around and complain. So yes, there are a lot of problems at the FAA, but also it would be nice if, if Congress were to say, hey, let's maybe solve some of these problems. Right. And I think probably anybody would agree that these are the people you want at feeling good in at top shape, working at their best capacity. You don't want them yeah. tired and stressed and unhappy. Same with pilots. You don't want pilots feeling like they have to hide their mental health issues or their fatigue or anything like that. I mean, the obvious thing that everybody must want is that this is a an industry that makes these people be okay. And the thing is like, we're complaining about, you know, this is an unsafe system. It's, you know, how dare they? Okay. We know how we could make it safer. We know how we could solve some of these problems. And yet we've chosen not to do that because it might cost a little more money. Right. It's disheartening to, to see on the one hand of how things are being handled, but also on the other hand of, of appropriations not coming through to, to help solve those problems. Yes. But at least it's all very much in the conversation now. I mean, a lot of people are aware of this. People yeah. aren't following the industry are yeah. aware of this. So that's going to, I believe that'll force some I, I think that will help, definitely help move the needle. And I also think that the entire conversation, not just in aviation, but writ large throughout, you know, US society, but also other regulatory bodies, whether it's Europe or, or Asia, the topic of mental health seems much more approachable now than it did even, you know, a few years ago. Definitely. Where we can talk about these things without having to say, oh, well, you know, I'm sure it's fine. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sure everybody, everybody's fine. They just need to toughen up. That whole conversation has completely changed. Right. So I, I think that's um, so much for the better. All right, sir. 
Thank you so much for stepping into the breach. You're welcome. Not a problem. And going on the fly, Jason was 65% better. And then when we got time to record, it's late in the evening on Wednesday here in Stockholm. So, so midday in New York, and we just couldn't get it together for Jason. So I hope he's feeling better by next week. I'm sure he will be. But Gabe, thank you so much for joining us. And, and if you haven't checked out the YouTube channel, absolutely please do check out our, our YouTube channel because there's some fantastic content. And if you have, and you're not subscribed to the YouTube channel, you should do that too, because that way you get the videos as soon as they're published. Just like if you're subscribed to the podcast, you get the podcast as soon as it's published. So do all of those things. This has been episode 245 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here this week with Gabriel Lee. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.